Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And Daughter Do Death. Hello, Phoebe. Hi, Dad. How are you? I'm okay. Yes, it's been a, almost two weeks since we recorded. Yeah. Uh, we've just both been extremely busy with one thing and another. God, it was in two weeks. That's gone very quickly, actually. <laughs> so what have we got tonight, Phoebe? So uh, before we started, I just wanted to comment on some news just to kind of bring it full circle because we covered it quite a few weeks ago and quite regularly all around the kind of Gabby Petito case and it's all been closed off and resolved which at least the families have got some closure now but still awful that it happened in the first place and that came in the form of a, a notebook that they found in the vicinity of Brian Laundrie's body in which he'd written a note to say that he killed Gabby and then took himself back to Florida and shot himself in the head. Obviously, he didn't write that in the note because that happened afterwards. But they found a gun that matched the kind of wounds that they found in the skull bone that they found pretty mm. clear cut, really. So really sad, awful case. Obviously, one that kind of garnered a lot of attention, but it's seemingly over now. I mean, I think they should still talk to his family because I feel like they must have known something was going on. But yeah. yeah. At least the family know what happened now. Mm-hmm. And that's it. No question about the that's legitimacy it. of this note or anything. No. Nope. Everyone agrees. Yeah. Sad. Sad, Sad, but I think kind of what everyone thought from the beginning. Yeah. So I think then the police who let them go, basically, when they kind of found them. Yeah, the, the, the Moab police who um, kind of didn't do anything really, and then she was dead a couple of days later. They're all under caution and uh, kind of being investigated for what they did wrong. Hopefully, some lessons will be learnt, but how many times do we say that? And then yeah. <laughs> no lessons are learnt. So there was another one that I thought was quite funny. It was an Irish man who dragged dead uncle into post office to claim his pension, carries his coffin at a funeral. So he carried <laughs> his dead uncle's body into the post office to try and claim his uh, pension, saying that he was still alive. And they were like, he's clearly dead. He was like, no, he's not. He's alive. He dragged his dead body into yeah. the post office. And uh, like propped him up and stuff. We carried him and was like, I'm here with him to collect his pension. And then obviously the locals found out and beat him up. Good Lord. Crazy, isn't it? There was this a weird case I've kind of been following in America about this girl who went on this bumble date with this bloke and then died. And I said it was a like massive alcohol and drug toxicity. They refused to investigate the guy. He was white. She was black. The family found out about it because they hadn't heard from her for a couple of days. So went around to her flat and there was a note on the door saying, like, if you're looking for her, call this number. And she called, they called the number and it was the police. And they're like, oh, yeah, she's dead. And they were like, shouldn't you have notified us of this information and they'd already done like an autopsy and stuff without any sort of family consent or anything they hadn't investigated the scene like at all they didn't investigate the guy they're like he seems like a nice they they, like quote they said like oh he looks like a nice he seems like a nice guy so we're not going to investigate him then when they went back they found like blood and stuff in the scene and they said oh it was an accidental death and the family are like you clearly haven't looked into this at all (laughs) so that's been quite interesting to follow do you have a story for me tonight Phoebe? I do. Tonight, I am going to be 
telling you about Harold Shipman. Oh, wow. (laughs) I think this is similar to Fred and Rose West in that it's one of those stories that everyone kind of thinks they know, but maybe don't quite know as well as I think they do, if that makes sense. I certainly learnt a lot whilst um, um, researching this. Harold Frederick Shipman was born on the 14th of January 1946 on the Bestwood Council Estate in Nottingham. He was the middle of three children born to Harold Frederick Shipman and Vera Britton, both of whom were devout Methodists. Harold, or Fred, as he was called by those closest to him, was the cleverest and the brightest of their three children and is said to have been Harold and Vera's favourite. He did really well at kind of junior school and he passed his 11 plus in 1957 and went on to attend High Pavement Grammar School in Nottingham. However, he found he had to work a lot harder once he got there than he had in the past, causing him to become a bit socially reclusive, as well as the fact that his mother wouldn't really let him kind of go out and socialise. It's said that he, yeah, he didn't really have any kind of female friends or any experience in there a former teacher said I don't think he ever had a girlfriend in fact he took his older sister to school dances they made a strange couple but then he was a bit strange a pretentious (laughs) lad (laughs) oh right okay outside of academia though he was a successful athlete he played rugby in the youth leagues and excelled as a long distance runner in his time at school eventually becoming vice captain of the athletics team in his final year at high pavement as I mentioned he was his parents favorite child and they kind of made no bones about that and he was particularly close to his mother um his father was a long distance truck driver so was often away for long chunks of time leaving him with his mother and his siblings um Mm -hmm. at at home but his childhood was pretty unremarkable yeah he didn't suffer any abuse he was close with his mom but there's no evidence to say that he had like a weird relationship with her no evidence of arson or damage to the family pets um but was he a bedwetter no evidence of him being a bedwetter so <laughs> okay <laughs> he doesn't take any of the serial killer boxes just no bangs on the head no bangs on the head that we can find mm. okay <laughs> however things changed significantly for him in 1963 when his mom vera died of lung cancer She'd been poorly for quite a long time and had been administered morphine throughout the later stages of her disease in the hospital when she could go there. But then towards the end, when she couldn't really leave the house, the doctor had come to the house to administer the drugs for her. Shipman witnessed the impact of this morphine on her condition and how it helped her pain. And he was with her just after that last dose of morphine was administered to her, leading to her death. There are reports that pretty much straight after this, he went for a long run around the rainy, dark Nottingham roads. And that kind of euphoric high that he got from this run just kind of became linked in his head with Mm -hmm. this experience of seeing his mother's death and her being out of pain and this morphine. And somehow it all kind of just, yeah, became Mm -hmm. a a big event in his head altogether this kind of high connected to a massive release yeah and that was obviously something that he took with him into his future life after his mother's death he was inspired to get into medicine he attended Leeds school of medicine from 1964 to 1970 and but getting in had been a bit of a struggle for him in spite of his self-proclaimed superiority he'd had to rewrite the exam 
exams he'd failed first time round. <laughs> but he did get the grades eventually that were good enough for him to get his degree and to serve his mandatory hospital internship. Okay. Not very many of his teachers and students really remembered him. Um, he was pretty unremarkable. Some who do remember him said that he looked down on them and seemed bemused by the way that young men behaved. Someone said it was as if he tolerated us. If someone told a joke, he would smile patiently. But Fred never wanted to join in. It seems funny because I later heard he'd been a good athlete, so you'd have thought he'd be more of a team player. Mm-hmm. Most of his contemporaries just remembered him as a loner. And they also remember that the one place where his personality changed was on the football field and the rugby field. And it was here that his aggression was un- unleashed. He was really oh, quite wow. patient in other places. But when he was playing football and rugby, he was quite, he used to get quite angry. And his dedication to win was intense. Right. Yeah. During this time, he met and married Primrose May Oxtoby, um, who was five months pregnant when they got married. Um, and they went on to have four children together. After graduating Leeds School of Medicine in 1970, he began working at Pontefract General Infirmary before taking his first position as a general practitioner at the Abraham Omeroid Medical Centre in Todd Morden in 1974. Shortly after becoming a GP, Shipman started having relatively frequent seizures. And the, the partners at the GP practice were quite worried about this because they thought, you know, he was this bright, young, new GP. He was great. Everyone loved him. And they thought that he had this epilepsy that was causing him to have these seizures. But it became apparent quite quickly that these seizures weren't because of a medical condition, but because he'd become addicted to pethidine, um, oh, wow. for which he'd been forging prescriptions for his own use. And he was at the kind of peak of it. He was taking about 15 injections of pethidine a day. A day? Um, so oh he was God. constantly having this buzz of pethidine. So pethidine is commonly used as a painkiller during childbirth yeah. and is an opioid, is a, a synthetic opioid. But when it's used too much, it can cause sickness, dizziness, seizures, psychosis and comas. Um, so he was using it so much, it was causing him to black out so much. He didn't have a, a drug problem when he was at school or university or... Not that there seems to be any kind of reports of. Right, okay. Um, I don't know if it was just because of all of a sudden he could get hold of it quite easily. He just kind of took advantage of it. But quite quickly after joining general practice, he developed this uh, issue with pethidim. Okay. Once this was discovered, he was fined £600 and forced to attend a rehabilitation clinic in York for two months to get over this addiction. In 1977, he moved with his family to Hyde near Manchester, where he became a GP at the Donnybrook Medical Centre. In 1993, Shipman established his own surgery at the now infamous 21 Market Street in Hyde. Uh, Shipman was a well-liked and well-trusted doctor um, with a good rapport with his patients, but he was known to be arrogant and demanding with his colleagues and juniors. Things seemed to be going quite well for Harold Shipman. You know, he... uh, He was busy. He was always Mm -hmm. out and about visiting his patients. But suspicions around Shipman started to be raised in 1998. In March 1998, Linda Reynolds of the Brook Surgery in Hyde expressed her concerns to John Pollard, the coroner for the South Manchester District, about the high death rate amongst his patients. It was noticed that during his 20 years in Hyde that he'd issued 499 death certificates. And the next highest death certificate figure was 210. Mm-hmm. So he'd certified over double the amount of deaths as 
one the of next the highest, yeah. the next highest, yeah. which is quite a lot. <laughs> it was also yeah, noted that in 1997 he recorded a total of 39 deaths. That's almost one a week. While none of the other five GPs in Hyde had reached double figures for certifying mm. deaths. So he was having these really, really high death rates amongst his patients. Linda Roberts was particularly concerned about the large number of cremation forms for elderly women that he'd needed countersigned. So in the UK, GPs need forms countersigned by another GP before a body can be released for cremation. Right. Which I didn't know. And she thought that there was an alarming number of cremation forms that she was being asked to countersign that he was signing off already. And police started investigating this, but they were really unable to find any evidence. And the investigation was closed a month later in April 1998. In August 1998, taxi driver John Shaw told police that he thought Shipman had murdered 21 patients. He'd become suspicious because many of the elderly customers he knew well and had taken yeah. to hospital appointments had seen in you know, pretty good health for their age. But then they died really suddenly in Shipman's care. A local undertaker had also flagged his concerns to the police about the number of patients that he was receiving who had a death certificate signed by Howard Shipman. So I guess it comes to something when the undertaker starts kind of <laughs> yeah. questioning the amount of business they get. <laughs> Complaining about the amount of business. Yeah. yeah. But I know he was an intelligent bloke, but surely he'd have known that his high rate would have been suspicious. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure we will definitely talk about this at the end, but He'd okay. been getting away with it for a very long time. Yeah. And I think, yeah, he just, he was just getting away with it. So on the 24th of June, 1998, 81-year-old Kathleen Grundy was found dead at her home. Harold Shipman was the last person to see her alive and had signed her death certificate, recording the cause of death as old age. It all seemed like a normal, sad story of an elderly lady being found dead at home. Even though it was quite sudden, she was very active in the community and then people were surprised at how quickly she'd kind of deteriorated and died. But it all seemed like a normal normal case. But suspicions were raised when Kathleen's daughter, Angela, was contacted by her mother's solicitor and told that her mother's will had recently been changed and that the solicitor doubted the authenticity of the will. The new will that had been written and was being purported to be Kathleen's, completely excluded Angela and her family and left the majority of her £400,000 estate to Shipman, which is just weird. (laughs) The solicitor's urging, Angela, who was a a sister herself, actually contacted the police who began another investigation into Shipman. This actually led to Kathleen's body being exhumed because luckily she hadn't been cremated. Uh And when they examined her hair and her tissues, they found traces of diamorphine in her tissues. So luckily for the family, diamorphine and heroin, which is really doesn't decay very quickly. It hangs around for a very long time. So they were able to find the traces of this this drug, which is often used for pain relief, um, Mm -hmm. especially in terminal cancer patients. When Shipman was presented with this information, he claimed that Kathleen Grundy who was 81 had actually been a heroin addict and showed them comments that he'd written to that effect in in his computerized medical journal okay however examination of his computer showed that these uh, comments were written after she died there wasn't any proof that this 81 year old stalwart of the community had been a heroin addict just that he'd written posthumously in her notes that she had Mm -hmm. been 
but he'd backdated them to make it look like he'd made these notes yes. over years or months or something before she died. Yes, yeah. but he didn't realise that his hard drive just recorded when the changes were made. So he could have said, oh, he'd made that on the 1st of January 1998, but actually yeah, yeah. I could see that he did it on the 1st of September yeah. 1998. He, he was also found to have in his possession a brother typewriter, which was the same as the kind used to forge Kathleen's will, which he claimed that she sometimes borrowed, which is weird as, as well. He would borrow a hmm. typewriter from their GP. <laughs> I don't think I've ever met my GP. <laughs> I, I don't think it's the sort of yeah you wouldn't start with the jupiter well yeah. no it's not where i'd it's a sort of relationship they had i suppose but uh... and uh, kathleen was said to be you know immaculate she kept everything really neat and really tidy this new will was really scruffy it was really badly presented the signature didn't really look like hers it was just very sloppily done um so right. the whole family and the solicitors were were concerned as to what was going on thinking hmm, this isn't quite right so Harold Shipman was arrested on the 7th of September 1998, which sparked an investigation into his entire medical career and the discovery of hundreds of excess deaths um, mm-hmm. kind of following in his wake. It's almost impossible to calculate how many people he killed. Yeah. The general consensus is that it was about 214 people, but some estimations say that he killed up to 1,000 people in his wow. time working in the medical profession his mo was simple he would build up the trust of his patients visit them on a house call inject them with morphine to kill them and then sign their death certificate saying it was just old age that he'd pop around they were dead some patients he even killed in his own surgery as they were all elderly people and he'd signed the death certificate there was very rarely uh, needed to be any other investigations and most of his victims were cremated, destroying yeah. all evidence of, of what had taken place. A lot of his patients were found sitting up in their chairs, fully dressed, which is often considered strange as elderly people rarely died in that sort of way, especially if you know they'd kind of been deteriorating, they'd probably been in bed in pyjamas. Um, yeah. And this was something that was remarked on by the undertaker who'd flagged up that he was concerned. One thing that he would do is change medical records to add in historic information to justify the needs for some of the drugs that he was giving if he thought that he was going to be caught he didn't realize that his hard drive recorded every alteration made (laughs) exactly at the time that he did it so that when police started looking they could see when the changes he'd made and most of these had been after these people had died um, and after he'd started to be investigated. He'd kind of started to kind of shove a load of notes in to cover his tracks, thinking, oh, the police won't, won't get me on this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he didn't realise Computer that. forensics. <laughs> yes. Um, we can't go through every single victim because they're not. No. Worth, no. <laughs> and um, unfortunately, a lot of the cases are very similar. Um, but there were, there were some that I wanted to highlight. Okay. So his, his first patient, is thought to have been 70-year-old Eva Lyons, who he murdered the day before her 71st birthday in March 1975. Oh, wow. So this was ago. right back when he was first working in his first um, GP practice. She'd been suffering from cancer, like his mother, um, and he'd gone to her house where, in front of her husband, he administered the fatal dose of morphine, causing her to die. And although she was terminally ill, it happened kind of earlier than they were expecting it to so i think right. that that was probably attributed to him 
Jim King was wrongly diagnosed with cancer in 1966 and given chemotherapy. Much later, doctors discovered their mistake. However, Shipman didn't tell him. He told him that he had months to live and prescribed him even larger morphine doses. Having a terminal cancer patient on his books meant that he could order in kind of as much morphine as he wanted um, because he could just (laughs) keep prescribing it to him he didn't need to kind of justify it because the sort of amounts of morphine that he was using would have looked really suspicious had he not had a terminal cancer patient kind of in his surgery so he just yeah he was able to do that yeah Jim King was able to get a second opinion and told that actually no you don't have terminal cancer anymore so or you've never had it at all (laughs) so you don't need this morphine and he believes that Shipman was responsible for the death of his parents who both died quite suddenly under his care as well shipman's youngest victim was 41 year old peter lewis in his youth peter um had been in a pop band and they'd had moderate success and they had a number one hit in holland knocking the beatles off the top spot oh wow he'd been suffering with stomach cancer which shipman had actually failed to diagnose for six months when he died at home in june 1985 he'd married his wife muriel two years before his death and then moved to Tameside, where their doctor was Shipman. Shortly after they moved, he was losing weight dramatically and visited his GP. And Shipman diagnosed it with an ulcer, but the weight loss didn't stop. And Peter was becoming weaker by the day. And one trip to the GP, he had to be carried in by his wife. When they got in there, Shipman was washing his hands at the sink and turned around saying, have you two got a season ticket? And they were like, I'm sorry, what did you say? And he just said it again. (laughs) Um... And they thought that he was a really nice, caring doctor up until this Mm. point when they were kind of like, "Um, well, we're still quite worried about this condition. And then he was finally given the news that he was suffering from stomach cancer, which had already spread um, when they went to the Manchester Royal Infirmary to kind of get a second opinion. And less than a month later, he was dead. On New Year's Eve 1985, he was called to their house because he was so ill. And Peter's wife said that she heard Shipman saying to her husband, come on, lad, give up. We've all had enough. (laughs) And that she gained the impression that he was willing him to die. Wow. And he was how old? 40? 41. Wow. When he'd kind of, yeah. And he died that night when he was kind of pumped full of of morphine. from And and he was in that state because he'd misdiagnosed him in the first place. So it wasn't just the fact that he was killing all these people. He was uh, misdiagnosing him as well. Not a very good doctor. Another victim was said to be Maria West and she died of a fatal dose of diamorphine just minutes after she made her friend a cup of tea. Shipman had arrived at her home whilst her friend was in the upstairs bathroom and when she came back to the kitchen she could hear Mrs West talking to the doctor and as they'd been talking for several minutes everything went quiet and she assumed that the doctor was about to go. However a few minutes later Shipman walked into the kitchen and didn't and acted surprised and said, oh, I didn't realise anyone was here, hmm. telling her that, oh, she just collapsed on me. And then when the friend asked if anything could be done, she said, nope, she's gone. Wow. <laughs> Audacious, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. yeah. He made no attempt to resuscitate her or call the emergency services. He opened one of her eyes and just said, see, there's no life in there. And that was it. Ivy Lomas was a regular at his surgery on Market Street. <laughs> She was 63 and Shipman had joked that part of the seating area should be reserved for her and a plaque put up because she was there so often. Mm -hmm. The court heard that Shipman had disappeared into a treatment room with her 
Later, he emerged looking tired and flushed and told the receptionist, I'm sorry about the wait. I've just had a problem with this ECG machine. And then he saw three more patients in the same room before calling the receptionist back into the consultation room. There he told her that Mrs. Lomas had died despite his attempts at resuscitation and failure to resuscitate or call the emergency services is a feature which appears time and time again in his cases. Right. When they exhumed Ivy Lomas's body, because she also had been buried, they found traces of diamorphine in her tissues and hair as well. Yep. It is believed that he killed 71 patients while working at Donnybrook and around 160 at his Market Street practice, the vast majority of those being elderly women. His trial began at Preston Crown Court on the 5th of October 1999 and he was charged with the murders of only 15 women by lethal injections of diamorphine, all between 1995 and 1998. And we've seen this a few times, I think, where they know that they've got a compelling case for these people, they've got enough evidence... 15 life sentences is quite a long time. If they if they, they think that they can convict on these, they will. So yep. those women were Marie West, Irene Turner, Lizzie Adams, Jean Lilly, Ivy Lomas, Muriel Grimshaw, Marie Quinn, Kathleen Wagstaff, Bianca Pomfret, Nora Nuttall, Pamela Hillier, Maureen Ward, Winifred Meller, Joan Malaya and Kathleen Grundy. His legal representatives tried unsuccessfully to have the Grundy case tried separately from the others, as the motive was shown by the alleged forgery of Grundy's will. And that was the only case that it seemed that he really had any kind of financial interest in. The one and, where he forged the will to try and get the 400,000? Yeah. yeah. That one. Yeah, that one. And some people are not sure if it's whether because he thought he could have that money and then just retire, then hop off to another country and live happily ever after, or whether... It was almost his kind of attempt to get caught because he knew he couldn't really stop himself. So the only way that he'd be able to stop is if somebody stopped him. So if he got caught, they'd have stopped him in his tracks, but I don't know. So that was the only one that had any... Financial kind of, any real financial motive, yeah. On the 31st of January 2000, so 22 years ago today, after six days of deliberation the jury found Shipman guilty of 15 counts of murder and one count of forgery. Mr Justice Forbes subsequently sentenced Shipman to life imprisonment on all 15 counts of murder with the recommendation that he never be released. Wow. On the 11th of February, just 10 days after his conviction, he was struck off by the General Medical Council. And two years later, Home Secretary David Bunkett confirmed that he would serve a whole lifetime if he would be in prison for the rest of his life. Shipman consistently denied his guilt, disputing the scientific evidence against him. He never made any public statements about his actions. And his wife, Primrose, steadfastly maintained her husband's innocence, even after his conviction, selling their house in Hyde and renting property near Wakefield Prison so she could go and uh, visit him quite regularly. And it was said that throughout the trial, she would you know, make small talk with the families. She'd pass chocolate round, chocolates around to the, the families of the deceased. And it's like she was in total denial about what had gone on. And I think there was always some kind of questions about whether she knew something that she shouldn't have. But I think that okay. general consensus is that she knew nothing and she was just completely in denial about what he might have been doing. Wow. Shipman is the only doctor in the history of British medicine found guilty of murdering his patients. So that's really? comforting, really, isn't it? <laughs> that, 
it's uh he's the only doctor it, well, ever really he's very comforting but yeah. slightly surprising yeah. <laughs> so uh our good old friend john bodkin adams was charged in 1957 with murdering a patient but yeah. he was acquitted so mm, there's true. no you know there, there was there was no impetus to examine the flaws in the in the British legal system for doctors until Shipman's case. Yeah. So Harold Shipman, quite famously, hanged himself in his cell at HM Prison Wakefield at 6.20am on the 13th of January 2004, the eve of his 58th birthday. He was pronounced dead at 8.10am. A statement from Her Majesty's Prison Service indicated that he'd hanged himself from the window bars of his cell using bed sheets. Some of the victim's family said that they felt cheated um, as his suicide meant that obviously they'd never have the satisfaction of his confession nor answers as to why he committed his crimes. David Blunkett, who was Home Secretary at the time, said that celebration was tempting. Um, you wake up and you receive a call telling you Shipman's topped himself and you think, is it too early to open a bottle? And then you discover that everyone's very upset that he's done it, is what mm. David Blunkett said. Okay. Probably Slightly not the strange statement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very odd. Shipman's death divided national newspapers, with the Daily Mirror branding him a cold coward and condemning the prison service for allowing this to happen. However, The Sun ran a celebratory front page headline, Ship, Ship, Hooray, is mm-hmm. what they went with. His motive for suicide was never established, though it's quite commonly thought that it was to kind of help his wife's financial security after he was stripped of his NHS pension. Primrose received a full NHS pension and she'd not have been entitled to it if Shipman had lived past 60. So she was able to kind of inherit his pension because he died before the age of 60. So I reckon that's why. After his body was released to the family, it remained in Sheffield for more than a year, despite multiple false reports about his funeral. His widow was advised by police against burying him in case the grave was attacked. And then he was eventually cremated on the 19th of March 2005 at Hookcliffe Woods Crematorium. And the cremation took place outside normal hours to maintain secrecy and was attended only by Primrose and their four children. The shipment inquiry was submitted in July 2002, concluded that he had killed at least 218 of his patients between 1975 and 1998. And Dame Janet Smith, who was the judge who submitted the report, admitted that many more deaths of a suspicious nature could not be definitively ascribed to him, but probably were him. Um, She issued uh, several kind of variations of this report. And the sixth and final report, which was issued on the 24th of January 2005, she reported that she believed that he had killed three patients and she had serious suspicions about further deaths, including that of a four-year-old girl during the early stage of his medical career when he was working at Pontefract General Infirmary. In total, 459 people had died under his care between 1971 and 1998. Mm -hmm. But it's uncertain how many of those were murder victims. I suppose some of them would have been genuine. Yeah. I think if if you look at the kind of other figures of other GPs over that same time period who were kind of seeing about 200 deaths, it looks like it's a kind of excess of about 250 people so there's a 20 year period yeah Yeah. so in 2005 it came to light that shipman may have stolen jewelry from his victims in 1998 police had seized over 10,000 pounds worth of jewelry they found in his garage but the only piece that could be traced and returned to a murdered patient's family was a platinum diamond ring 
for which the family provided a photograph as proof of ownership. Um, But Primrose Shipman had admitted that this wasn't her jewellery, so they never really figured out who the jewellery belonged to. But it looked like maybe he was kind of stealing bits of jewellery from families as well. So the Shipman case and series of recommendations in the Shipman inquiry led to big changes in standard medical procedures in the UK, now referred to as the Shipman effect. Many mm-hmm. doctors reported changes in their dispensing practices and a reluctance to risk over-prescribing pain medication, which probably led to a lot of under-prescribing of pain medication for a long time. Death certification practices were altered as well. And perhaps the largest change was the movement from single doctor general practices to multiple doctor general practices. That wasn't a direct recommendation, but rather because the report stated there wasn't enough safeguarding and monitoring of doctors' yeah. decisions in the practices that that existed and the forms needed for a cremation in england and wales have had their questions altered as a direct result of the shipment case for example the person organizing the funeral must answer do you know or suspect that the death of the person who's died was violent or unnatural do you consider that there should be any further examination of the remains of the person who's died that's on every single cremation certificate now just in case okay I think one response to the Shipman case was to emphasise that he was a murderer who was coincidentally also a general practitioner. Yeah. But of course, this is true, but it doesn't explain whether and why the environment of general practice allowed him to murder so many people without detection over obviously a 20 year period. But a lot of excess deaths for one person to go unnoticed for such a long time before really one mistake or one kind of bit of sloppy paperwork caused him to be found out. It's a very strange story, isn't it? It's a really <laughs> weird story. Yeah. Like what was it? Well what was it? Yeah, what was in it for him? What was his motivation behind it? It wasn't financial. Was it just the thrill of well, it must have just been the thrill of killing people yeah. and seeing people die in front of him and yeah and the, and the reliving of his mother's death yeah over um, and over again but over yeah. and over again but yeah it's such a, a sh- huge risk to take yeah yeah well it was it cost him everything didn't it in the end yeah but to get well yeah a huge risk to take for all those years and never yeah. get cool i suppose it was also all the trusted family doctor yeah he was one of those people wasn't he that you'd always look up to in in the community yeah Yeah. i don't know if a gp could get away with it now i don't know if gps are holding quite such esteem now but you can't see see him yeah (laughs) (laughs) you'd be lucky if your gp murdered you because you actually got to see (laughs) (laughs) but that's true actually um about the single practice very very rarely a single doctor practices yeah I don't think I've ever come across a single doctor, or not in, like, to my knowledge, come across a single doctor practice. Even the idea of, like, a doctor coming around to your house to see you. I remember really when, vividly, when I was, what, five, and I had tonsillitis, and a doctor came around yeah. one night. It was like a locum on I remember that, sort of thing, yeah. someone coming around then, but... Apart from that, the thought now of a doctor coming to your house to see you. These two, yeah, when <laughs> I was crazy. little, the doctor would come. Yeah. You said when I had German measles or chicken pox, whatever, the doctor would come to see me in bed. That's I crazy. I remember that. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. It wouldn't happen now. 
Zoom call. Well, <laughs> if you're yeah, lucky. Definitely doctors used to make house calls quite regularly. They'd do their morning surgery, go out on house calls, and then go back for evening surgery. I guess there maybe wasn't so much paperwork back then. I don't know. And that could be part of it. Yeah. Not so many safeguards. Not so many safeguards. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I guess that throws up the question of, well, what would you rather have in place? Safeguards to stop essentially one doctor, one rogue doctor killing all these people or yeah. less safeguarding, seeing more patients. But yeah, I thought it was an interesting story. Um, Very interesting. I yeah. thought that he'd done more with money. I thought that he'd tried to get more I, money from I, I did actually, but it seems to be the only one where yeah. he forged that will. Yeah. Wow. When he just kind of changed his... Mo thought, see what I can get out of this, and that didn't go very well for him. Did he also continue to prescribe drugs for himself, or at least prescribe them for someone else, but then take them himself? Was he still doing that? I'm not sure. I don't think so. I mean, or I know if the he wasn't, thing, but... wasn't as reported. I think it was more he just kind of got his kicks from killing people. Maybe he just replaced his pethidine addiction with this. Yeah. For killing people and realised that he was getting as much of a buzz and less seizures by killing other people. It just sounds like with his rather a bit strange childhood and his time at school and college and then appearing to be really a respected, upstanding member of the community, but yet doing all that. It mm. sounds like he's just wired wrong somewhere. Yeah, yeah I mean... <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. He's a psychopath, really, isn't he? Mm. <laughs> yeah, so kind of lack of social said. skills. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting what you said, though, that he was a murderer who happened to be a GP. Yeah, he wasn't a GP who turned into a murderer. It was more like he was wired to be a murderer who decided to go into medicine so he could murder, he almost. If he hadn't got into medicine, I wonder what he would have... I feel like he's the sort of person that, once he had his mindset on something, that's what he was going to do he wasn't one of those people that was kind of right. going to let stuff get in his way, you know? That's what he wanted to do. So he was going to get into medicine. He was going to become a doctor. He was going to become a GP. He was going to, you know, do all these things that he set his mind to. Very interesting story. some balls to kill 250 people and think that you can get away with it. Yeah. And he did for such a long time. That's the crazy that's thing. A, that's the sc- absolutely scary, crazy thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that is the story of of Harold Shipman. Brilliant. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for tackling that one. <laughs> I mean, there's, there is so much more to it, as with everything else. There's, there's always so much more. And you could do yeah. parts and episodes and episodes and episodes of it. But yeah, and there's so many other stories of people to tell. But as with a lot of our cases, we kind of skim the surface for you. And then if you decide it's something that <laughs> you want to dig into, you want to dig into. Yeah. Oh, yes, I have no doubt there's a lot out there about yeah. old Chipman. Yeah, just a, an evil man, I think. Yeah. A murderer who just happened to be a GP. Well, thank you very much for the uh, for that really interesting story and the classic British murder case of mm. relatively recent times. I remember it happening. I remember seeing yeah. him. I remember vividly when he committed suicide. I remember yeah. seeing his, um, I think I was probably a little bit young to remember kind of when it actually happened, but I remember when it was all kind of brought back up again when he committed suicide. So, yeah, it felt like a case that we should cover in our well, well done. exploration yeah. of European <laughs> cases. So, there you go.
Any pictures you can share? Loads of pictures. Yeah, there's that kind of traditional one that everyone knows of him looking really creepy, but loads of other pictures out there. I will share them on our social media accounts. I'll share them on Instagram. At Dad and Daughter Do Death. And Facebook. Dad and Daughter Do Death. And if you want to get in touch with us about this or anything else or any suggestions for cases, you can drop us an email at dadanddaughterdodeath at gmail.com. Thank you very much uh, for listening. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this episode, there are plenty more now in our back catalogue. <laughs> 48 other episodes to uh, Subs- Yeah, if you subscribe, then uh, you'll get the next episode drop into your podcast app whenever it's released. You will. Thank you again, Phoebe, for that interesting piece of recent history. And uh, join us again next time when once again, Dad and daughter do death. Mm-hmm.